Friends, good morning. And uh, may I add my welcome to this day, to this worship service, wherever you may be. Uh, as was mentioned, my name is Dave Bast, and I'm preaching today the second of a two-part series for the Christmas season from Matthew chapter 2. And today, Epiphany Sunday, uh, is the day when we acknowledge Jesus as the light of the world who has come into the world's darkness to bring light and life. In him was light, life, John says, and the life was the light of all, the true light that enlightens everyone was coming into the world. So that's the meaning of epiphany. Literally, the word means appearing. And uh, we're going to listen to two epiphany passages, one from the gospel according to Isaiah and the other from the gospel according to Matthew. So let's listen to those now. Our first scripture from Isaiah 60. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth, and thick dark darkness is over the peoples. But the Lord rises upon you, and his glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Lift up your eyes and look about you. All assemble and come to you. Your sons come from afar, and your daughters are carried on the hip. Then you will look and be radiant. Your heart will throb and swell with joy. The wealth on the seas will be brought to you. To you the riches of the nations will come. Herds of camels will cover your land. Young camels of Midian and Ephah and all from Sheba will come, bearing gold and incense and proclaiming the praise of the Lord. All Keter's flocks will be gathered to you. The rams of Nebaioth will serve you. They will be accepted as offerings on my altar and I will adorn my glorious temple. Who are these that fly along like clouds, like doves to their nests? Surely the islands look to me, in the lead are the ships of Tarshish, bringing your children from afar with their silver and gold to the honor of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has endowed you with splendor. Foreigners will rebuild your walls and their kings will serve you. Though in anger I struck you, in favor I will show you compassion. Your gates will always stand open. They will never be shut day or night. So that people may bring you the wealth of the nations, their kings led in triumphal procession. For the nation or kingdom that will not serve you will perish it will be utterly ruined. A reading from Matthew 2, verse 1 through 12. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of the king Herod, Magi, from the, east, from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and to get teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. 
In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out you will come a ruler who is, will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go, and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was born. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. This is the word of the Lord. I mentioned that this is uh, the second of two sermons from Matthew chapter 2, but taken in reverse order. Uh, So last week, if you were with us or if you weren't, you can check it out on our YouTube channel. We looked at the, the rather puzzling details of the second part and disturbing um, of the second part of Matthew, uh, the story of the slaughter of the innocents by King Herod um, and the point that Matthew makes with his theological geography there is that Jesus is the one. He is Uh, recapitulating in his own life the whole history of Israel. He is the true Israel. Uh, Matthew has told us in chapter 1 quite clearly that he's Emmanuel, God with us. But in chapter 2, he wants us to understand that he's not just true God, he is true man. He is the one. He is the representative human being who, as God and man, will carry out our end of the covenant that we fail to do. God's going to do his part, and he's going to do our part for us. So we turn in faith to Christ and find in him uh, everything that we could need or want for salvation. And now, uh, on Epiphany, traditionally, the passage uh, that's read is the story of the wise men. We three kings of Orient are... And here they are in a beautiful image from the 6th century from a church in Ravenna in Italy. You can see here they're walking, they're marching, but they're bearing their gifts. And uh, this artistic mosaic, it's just a fabulous depiction of the traditions surrounding the wise men as we think of them. Uh, Each of them has a gift. Their names are there. Caspar, Melchior, and Balthazar. In legend, they were uh, differentiated as uh, sort of representatives of the human family. One was 20, one was 40, one was 60, young, middle-aged, old. One was dark, one was fair, one was sort of in the middle. Uh, They came bearing these wonderful gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Uh, And the legends go on. They don't stop there. Uh, They were eventually discovered 
by St. Thomas, who baptized them, and when they died, their bodies were uh, brought back by uh, Constantine the Great, the Roman Emperor, and eventually by horse trading that went on in the Middle Ages, they ended up, their bones are in the cathedral in Cologne, Germany, if you believe that. Um, I always, this idea of the relics that were venerated and worshiped and collected uh, in the Middle Ages makes me think of Luther's comment that if all the pieces of the true cross were gathered from all the cathedrals and churches in Europe that claimed to have them, you could build a ship with the wood and sail it to the Holy Land. But uh, legends abound. And they are legends uh, from what Matthew tells us. They probably owe their identification as kings more to the Isaiah 60 passage than they do to the Gospel of Matthew. He calls them magi, not kings. That there were three in number is uh, a conclusion drawn for the number of gifts. We're not told by Matthew how many they were, more than two or more, anyway, it's in the plural. Uh, that they came from the east. Matthew does say that uh, in verse uh, one, in fact, he says, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, magi from the east came to Jerusalem. The word he uses means the place of the sun's rising, Anatolia in Greek, Oriens in Latin, the Orient, the place of the sun's rising to the east of where you are, where you happen to be. And the word occurs later in the story to describe the famous star of the, of the Magi. We have seen his star, and it could be translated in the east, back when we were in the east, or in the eastern part of the sky, or as many versions translate it now, we have seen his star at its rising. And there's been a great deal of debate over the centuries about what the star of the wise men was. Was it a, an actual star? Was it a planetary conjunction, like the Christmas star we saw in our skies a few days ago? Uh, a conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn? Was it a comet? Some have suggested, since it seemed to travel was it simply a supernatural astral phenomenon put there by God for the special purpose of attracting the Magi's attention? We don't really know. Probably doesn't matter all that much. The point is, it did attract their attention. And it led them to travel to Jerusalem. Somehow they knew it was connected with Judea, this uh, heavenly sign and it portended the birth of a king. And so, naturally enough, they go to Jerusalem. Where else would you go to find a king of the Jews? And they arrive and announce rather uh, dramatically, where is he who's born king of the Jews? For we have seen its star at its rising, and we've come to worship him. And Matthew says, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. I guess so. You can just imagine the reaction. Herod, we know about him. We saw him 
and we do see him in the second part of this chapter. Uh, a, a thoroughly secular, evil, sinister, manipulative, secretive, capable of anything kind of guy. In fact, uh, one commentator simply runs through the historical record of Herod's behavior. Listen to this. He killed his wife, Mariamne, his mother, Alexandra, his three sons, Aristobulus, Alexander, and Antipater. He killed more than half the members of the Sanhedrin and sundry uncles, cousins, and other relatives. It's not surprising that Josephus, that Josephus the Jewish, Jewish historian, called him a pitiless monster, or that the Emperor Augustus said it was safer to be Herod's pig than his son. So Herod is upset. Another king? A rival king? What is this all about? And all Jerusalem with him, says Matthew. Uh, the people, you can just hear them saying to one, wait, wait a minute, how did we miss that? The king of the Jews, the Messiah, has been born, and these guys show up from Persia or someplace, wherever, and are looking for him, and we know nothing about it? <laughs> so Herod calls in the experts, and assembling the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Dale Bruner, in his wonderful commentary on Matthew, translates those uh, terms, those titles, as the senior ministers and the seminary professors. These were the real Bible experts. They knew the scriptures backwards and forwards, inside out, and immediately they provide the correct answer because it's right there in Micah chapter 5, another quote from the prophets. Matthew quotes them repeatedly in these two chapters. Why? He's to be born in Bethlehem. That's what it says. And so Herod, very slyly, draws the, uh, the magi, the wise men, aside and says to them, say, listen, I'd like to worship this king too, you know? I want to honor him. And, and obviously something big has happened and you're on to something here, so why don't you go track him down, find exactly where he is in Bethlehem, and then come back and tell me so I can go and offer him my homage. And off they go. They're overjoyed because somehow the star reappears or a new star marks the spot uh, and they go straight to the house. Uh, as we noted last week, the traditional manger scenes with the shepherds on one side and the wise men on the other, uh, again, don't speak to the historical record. This is some time now after Christ's birth. Joseph and Mary have found a place to live. Maybe Joseph has even found a job. Maybe they've decided to settle in Bethlehem. And the wise men come in and they see the child and falling before him, they worship him and offer him their treasures, the best they had, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So that's the story as Matthew tells it. What's it mean? 
Well, three things, I think. Uh, I think it's, first of all, a story of grace, of God's, what the theologians call prevenient grace, going ahead of grace. The grace that reaches out and touches us before we're even aware of anything happening. The amazing grace that John Newton wrote about. Twas grace that taught my heart to fear. Grace first aroused my serious thoughts about myself and about God. And then grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour we first believed. It's all about grace. Somebody makes the first move and it isn't us. Even if we think it's us, it's already been God who's gone on before, who's got our attention somehow. And he got the attention of the Magi by showing them a star. Really, really amazing. You know who the Magi actually were? We get our word magician from Magi. The Magi were astrologers, primarily. Sort of a mix of astronomy as well. And those two words are very close, aren't they? Astronomy and astrology. Astronomy is the scientific study of the heavenly bodies, the stars, the solar system, and all the rest. Astrology comes from that same word, astro, for star, but logos, the Greek word for word. Star word is what astrology means, star message. Astrologers believed that the movements of the planets in particular, the moving stars, as they saw the the heavens, they, they were keen-eyed, they studied, uh, especially in that clean desert air, no artificial light, they could see much more than we can today. They knew the constellations, they had named them. They knew the five planets visible to the naked eye, they had named them for gods. The Romans called them Mercury and Venus and Mars and Jupiter and Saturn all named for gods. And the, the astrologers would interpret the movements of the planets within the constellations and apply the messages that they derive from this to human lives. Your life was governed by the stars, the star sign under which you were born, the stars as they stood when you were about to make a propitious or important decision. That's what astrologers believed. Astronomy would become a science. Astrology is just bunk, always has been. One of the lessons of the story of the Magi is that the stars didn't rule the child, the child ruled the stars. <laughs> he made them. He called them by name. He numbered them, and not one of them is missing as a wonderful passage from Isaiah says. So this is really amazing grace. God used their muddled ideas, their superstition about the stars 
to get their attention and draw them to himself. Magi were were frowned upon (laughs) in ancient Israel. They were doing stuff that shouldn't be done. Magicians, stargazers, those who worship the heavenly bodies, all these things were anathema to Israel and Israel's God. And yet, this God is so gracious. He so wants to be known. He so wants to communicate to erring, straying, lost human beings that he'll use anything. God's not too proud to use something weird to get your attention. And so he reveals himself to them, first through a star, through nature, general revelation, we call it in theological terms. But the star alone didn't lead the wise men to Bethlehem. For that, they needed the Bible. And so comes the prophetic word from Micah that sends them ultimately to the house where they will find and worship the child. That's what the Bible's for. The Bible is meant to lead us to Christ. Luther called it the cradle in which the Christ child lies. When you read the Bible, keep on reading it until you come to Christ. He's the the destination. He's the goal. So it's a story of grace. It's also, let's acknowledge this, a story of remarkable faith, persistence. We don't know exactly where they were from. Maybe Persia. There was a highly developed culture of astrology in Persia, the ziggurats, those great stepped temples could be used as observatories, maybe from Arabia, maybe from somewhere else. But the point is, it took them a while, and they persisted. They went on and on and on till they finally found the king. And when they found him, what faith to still acknowledge him. He didn't look very kingly yet, A little boy, a toddler perhaps, sitting on his mother's lap in a small house in Bethlehem, not in the palace, but they recognized him nevertheless, and they acknowledged him, they worshiped him. And you know, you can't help but read the story and wonder, Herod, okay, write him off. He's just a bad character. But where were the senior ministers? (laughs) Where were the the seminary professors? Where were the scribes and the scholars, the ones who knew the scripture? Can't you imagine? Why didn't they get up and walk the four miles to Bethlehem? They knew what it said, but it didn't seem to matter to them. So faith, yeah, grace is the beginning, but faith needs to meet grace 
and respond to it as the, as the Magi did. And then thirdly, really perhaps most significantly, it's a story of the gospel itself. The good news that God is the God of all. The Magi are the, the sort of first fruits and harbingers of the coming of the Gentiles to the one who is the king of glory and the Lord of all. He's not just the Messiah of the Jews. It is too small a thing, God says in another great prophecy from Elijah, from Isaiah, Isaiah 49. It is too small a thing that you should be my servant simply to restore uh, Judah and Israel. I will make you a light to the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. He is a light to the nations. And the Gentiles represent, the, the Magi represent those Gentiles, those nations that ultimately will come. Matthew begins here in chapter 2 with the Magi. He ends, you know, with the Great Commission where the risen Christ says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go, make disciples of every nation, teaching them and baptizing them. And lo, I'm with you always. So, this is the story. Our king has come. One little interesting detail. At the beginning of chapter 2, it's Herod the king. Herod the king. When Herod the king heard this, after the magi worship the child, it's just plain Herod from then on throughout the rest of the chapter. He's no longer Herod the king because a greater king has come. And that, I think, is, is part of the challenge to us. As we think about this, as we think about the light having come into the world, what's our response? I'd like to suggest, quickly in closing, four things that, that the scriptures urge us to do in response to the light. And here is the first of them. Each of us, we need to turn to the light ourselves. Paul, writing in Romans 13, writes this, Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand, so then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. That passage is famous in church history because those are the verses that Augustine read at the moment he was converted. He finally, Augustine had long believed intellectually in the truth of the Christian faith. He had finally come to accept the Bible. He acknowledged that Jesus was Lord, he was king, he was the light, but he couldn't quite pull the trigger on committing himself because it meant he had to break with some, some habits that he was fond of. 
So it's a famous story. He tells it early in his autobiography, The Confessions. He's sitting in a garden. He's been reading. He's weeping. He can't quite make up his mind to finally and forever come to Christ. And he hears a voice in the distance, a child, as if it's playing a game, sing-song, saying, pick it up and read it, pick it up and read it, pick it up and read it. So he turns to the book he's just been reading, picks it up, and reads this. The night is far gone, the day is at hand, so let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. If you've never done that, if you've never turned to the light and said yes to him, you need to. <laughs> Second thing, let us walk in the light. These beautiful words from the first chapter of First John, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Beautiful words. The New Testament metaphor for the Christian life is walking because it's an ongoing thing. You know, frankly, uh, one of the useful ways to read this story of the Magi and Herod is to recognize that we've got a little bit of both inside us. There's a little bit of Herod that wants to get rid of him. There's a little bit of the wise men that wants to worship him. And we need to continually turn back toward the light. We need to walk ongoing in the light. And when we stumble and when we fall, remember the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. God knows us. He knows we'll stumble. He knows we'll feel bad. He'll know, he knows we'll be tempted to, to be discouraged. But keep walking in the light, we're told and all will be well. Here's a third thing. We need to bear witness to the light. That's what John the Baptist did. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He was not the light. He came to bear witness to the light. That's what Jesus told us. You're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Let your light so shine before others that they see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. Our whole lives need to be light. And remember, we're not the sun. <laughs> He's the sun. We're, we're just little moons who can reflect his light to a, a, a world in darkness. And last of all this, trust in the light. I don't know where you are right now. You may be in a dark, dark place. You may be in a dark time. These have been dark times, haven't they? It's been a, a dark world. But the light will come. 
one of the things uh, Betty Jo and I did this past year is we read through the Bible, um, as um, many of you did, who are members of Fifth. And there's so much value in doing that because you come upon things you had either forgotten or didn't even know they were there. And there's this wonderful passage that I read several weeks ago from the end of Micah, Micah chapter seven. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him. This is Israel in exile. The exact same figure that Isaiah used, Israel in exile, like a widow who's lost everything, her whole family. And the promise is that the light will dawn on her once more and she will shine, she will smile. I will bear his indignation. He will bring me out to the light. I shall look upon his vindication. Then my enemy will see and shame will cover her who said to me, where is the Lord your God? So fear not. Make this, amongst your other resolutions for a new year, make the most important one to live in the light. Turn to it, walk in it, witness to it, trust in it. The light will come. God has said so, and we believe him. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Pray with me. Lord, we confess and believe that your light has come into the world in the person of Jesus, your son. We believe that he will come again and bring light to all. And in the meantime, we pray indeed that the nations would turn to him in worship and obedience. And we pray that you would use us, use our church, use our lives in order to help make that happen. All for the glory of your name. Amen.